Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to the curators and artists at the Field Museum and learned about their secret dinosaur vaults. We heard crazy new music from a talented local trumpeter, and we learned that pigs will fly in front of the Orange Ones building in downtown Chicago. All this and more, plus the Trump Diaries, on Lumpen Week in Review for May 12th, 2017. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Lauren Smith and Kaylee Kuffner from the Field Museum about their upcoming show, Fieldwork 3. The curators filled us in on taxidermy, the secret underground vaults in the Field Museum, and they also stumped Edmar with some science questions. Radio Free, with John Daly, Ed Marzuski, and Jamie Trecker, airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN 105.5 FM. We are joined by the folks from one of my favorite places in the city and the most fascinating uh, collections in the city, the Field Museum. Uh, Lauren, welcome very much to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. But tell us a little bit about uh, how you guys have gotten together and, and are collaborating with the station and uh, co-prosperity sphere. Sure. Yeah, we're very excited to work with you guys. Uh, we have a gallery event happening here in, on this Friday, and it's titled Fieldwork, and it features 25 different artists from the Chicago area that are in some way affiliated with the Field Museum. So we either work at the museum or we're members of the Field Museum or uh, just we're in love with the collections of the museum because it has a lot to offer. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the odd things that you see at the museum. Oh, we've got some weird stuff for sure. Uh, we have this incredible collection behind the scenes. Everything that you see on display, Sue, all the wonderful mummies, all the taxidermy mounts, that's just 1% of what we actually have. We have 99% behind the scenes that the public doesn't get to see, and our job is to take care of it. Is it true that it's the largest collection of cadavers? I don't believe that's accurate. <laughs> okay. Where do you guys keep all this stuff? Do you have like an underground vault like sunk in Lake Michigan that, you know, you have to get to in like scuba outfits to get this stuff? Uh, not that dramatic, but there is an underground uh, area called the Collections Resource Center. So behind the walls of the dioramas, ab- above the dioramas upstairs, as well as uh, the basement where we keep all of the are you fun guys, things. Are you guys worried about the denizens of Undertown drilling a tunnel <laughs> into your collection? That is on. The, that that is something we are worrying about, actually. Yeah. But uh, we're far enough away from Bridgeport that we got some time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I thought this program was pretty phenomenal, right? Because I, I, I've seen you do some programs over at the Chicago Athletic Club, and I'm wondering what was the what, how did this all happen? How did you decide to do this kind of outreach to show the collection to the public in all these different off spaces and environments? Yeah, great question. So it actually the gallery show started. With a small group of friends, Uh, we all went to the School of the Art Institute. We're all artists, and we all work at the museum. And we just love the collection so much, and we really wanted to feature that since not a lot of people get to see what we do. They don't get to see behind the scenes, and we really wanted to bring a little bit of the museum out to the community so they can see how awesome it is. So what did you do? You said formed an ad hoc group? Because I don't know if you know this. Working with a bunch of artists is probably the worst thing you can do. <laughs> that is true. It's like herding cats. Yeah. So how did you guys organize and think about how you would do this collection? How did you start curating a, a show? Or was it all like everyone gets a chance to curate a show? So we've done this show. This will be the third time. The first time we did it was with just five artists. And it was in a little tiny gallery up in Evanston. And ever since then, we've just been you know tweaking it and getting it more and more better and better. And we've uh, collected a lot more artists along the way that share the same passion as us. And 
We this will be again the third time that we do it, and this is the probably the most exciting one since it's in uh, your space. Yeah, I'm really excited to see those um, display boxes in the front window. Yeah. So when people who happen to figure out a way to walk on our partial sidewalk <laughs> come by, or if the denizens of Undertown start popping up in front of our place, they're going to get a great view of these uh, display. Um, what, what do you call these things? Yeah, they're like dioramas. We have uh, the Harris Loan Learning Center offers dioramas for educators around the city. And so we've collected a few of those to have on display for you wait guys a, to see. Wait a second. Yeah, you can rent you them. You can rent the you can dioramas rent out? You sure can. Like a library card? Like it's, am I going? Like to, a library card. That's what our just, collection is. It's basically a library this, of dead animals. This <laughs> is a whole new world. This is really the most important <laughs> thing I've learned. <laughs> but so when you guys work at the Field Museum, what do you, what is what is it like? You go there, it's like, hey, we're gonna disassemble snakes, <laughs> or let's stuff some birds, or are you given assignments to like, what is it like? How would what's a day in the life? Well, I'm gonna give this over to my colleague Kaylee, who actually does stuff birds for a living. <laughs> nice. Hi. Um, yeah. So I work in the bird preparation lab. Um, so <laughs> did you just call it the bird preparation lab, the BPL? The BPL, yes, mm-hmm. you could call it that. Um, it's the Bird Division. Um, I work. I'm a collection. Is that a band name? The Bird Division. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. I'm They're sorry, from I'm Manchester. Gonna, uh, I'm going to stop interrupting. <laughs> no, that's okay. Start yeah. working on it's album fun. titles. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, uh, we get birds in from all over around this, the city of Chicago and a lot of cities. Um, they collide into buildings at night when they're flying through migration and. Mm-hmm. There is a team of people that go pick them up every morning before downtown gets super busy. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. No, I'm Are not. Are you guys following this? Yes, it's awesome. It's called uh, Chicago Bird Collision Monitors. Um, and they're not necessarily looking for dead birds. They're looking for live ones that are injured that they can send to a rehabilitation mm-hmm. center. Um, but all of the dead ones come to the Field Museum. And we get a lot of information from them. We know what's coming through Chicago at what time of year. Um, we can check stomach contents, look at parasites. We take DNA samples. Um, and then you stuff them. And then we stuff them all, yeah. So we have a physical specimen in basically a museum library. Is it, How long has this been happening? Uh, that collection specifically has been going on, that study has been going on for about 40 years. Um, our collection goes back over 200 years, though. Um, so have you created any, um, I guess, analyses of the the migration patterns of certain birds when they appear in Chicago? Yes. So there's a lot um, that our specific collection can tell us because it is a long-term data set. Um, Mm -hmm. If something is coming through two weeks later than it normally has in the past, we can look at climate change or its food source or, you know, a plethora of questions. Has anything super unique come up about, like, maybe there's too many glowworms in this bird's (laughs) belly at this time of the year? Or... Uh (laughs) Is there any uh, anomalies that you could think of for the past 40 years? Um, I know some, you know, beaks are getting smaller in certain species, um, which I, I should know off the top of my head. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. Species. Why is that happening? Uh, we don't know. Are they using, cause they're u- cause they're using their claws or? to eat now? <laughs> their, their beaks are opening seeds in different ways. Are or they maybe. developing thumbs? Yes. Should we be yes, worried? Yes, they are. Should we be worried? Yes, right. claws on the wings are coming back. No, but what does that actually indicate? Uh, it, it could be a lot of things, and, and we just don't know yet. Um, mm-hmm. And to be honest, we probably won't know the answer for a while. Um, we're going to keep collecting. And um, the so more information we get, the more questions we have. It's kind of like the more so, you know, less you know. So let's things. say I'm a bird, yeah. right? I, I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm flying in. I'm flying. You're, you're now. I'm flying. I'm now flying in from uh, northern uh, New York, right? I'm just getting out of the Hamptons, flying across. I kind of cross through Canada. Detroit freaks me out. I'm crossing the lake. I'm getting, I see this bright light. 
and then I just fly right into the glass over at the Art Institute. Yeah. At the at the modern wing. Yeah. I'm 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 gone. I'm a goner. What happens then? This commission, this group comes out, picks my owl body up. And if, if they put me in a bag, am I in a little casket? Am I in like a little plastic container? Am I a Tupperware? <laughs> what am I in? You are in a most likely a brown paper bag or a Ziploc bag or like a Starbucks pastry wrapper. Okay, you get birds in in McDonald's. And bags how do they and tag cups. me? They put it just write a permanent marker on the bag, or is there? Yep, tape? Uh, marks down. You know what corner you're found at. Um, down to like northeast, southwest part of the, the mm-hmm. street. Um, who found you? Um, mm-hmm. So that way we can go back if, you know, so many years from now we have a question about the bird, we can contact that person and ask them. Mm-hmm. Um, the date is one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some people try to identify the bird down in the species, um, which half the time is wrong. Um, wow. So it comes so in peop- and it, it, You mean people pick it up, try to identify it? Yeah. Like people. Because they're ornithologists. Pigeons on the and side say, I hobbyist. have a peregrine falcon. And, it's a pigeon. And it's, it's just a pigeon. There are yeah. falcons in the city, though, right? There are a lot of falcons, yeah. I um, remember there used to be one that uh, would go back and forth in the MCC to the federal building. Yeah. There's one um, that there's a, a nesting pair on um, the corner of Roosevelt in Michigan. I don't know the name of the building, but they nest on top of one of those buildings. I named it Bear Force One, but I don't think that That's was his actual good. name. <laughs> so there, <laughs> you can track all of them online, though. We have cameras what? set up on. Yeah, we have a. Uh, they're, they're nest cameras, and we go up and basically monitor. And what is this field museum? <laughs> this is a major institution. We're, we're living truly in a golden age. Yes. So, all right, I'm, now I'm inside your crib. I'm in the bowels of the field museum, right? Yeah. And now you're disemboweling me. Uh, yes, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And you're identifying the species. You're Are you taking DNA samples? We're taking you're DNA checking samples. Checking my stomach? Yep. Uh, if you're, yeah. We'll if I'm a worthy candidate, if I'm like an exotic falcon... <laughs> or, or night owl, owl. or yeah. night owl, mm-hmm. night owl from New York. Yeah. yeah, and then put in the freezer. Um, so everything com- when it comes in, it initially goes in the freezer, and that'll care- kill any parasites that are living in or on side of it. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, uh, the rate we're getting birds in is faster than we can keep up with. You know, I'm one person that can I can prepare a bird in maybe an hour, but it takes a lot longer for. We get more birds in faster than we can prepare them. So everything goes in freezers, and then when we get time, you know, I'll take a couple birds out to thaw in the morning and work through them through the day. How do you pick which ones to use for uh, scientific data gathering? All of them get used for scientific data, unless it's, like, absurdly, like, hit by a car and there's nothing we can get from it. Um, We'll toss it. But we'll either save it as a pickled specimen in alcohol. Um, We'll save it as a study skin, which is, like, essentially a taxidermied mount um or we'll save it as a skeleton and we'll use uh dermested beetles to clean the skeleton off you use what dermested beetles um they're flesh-eating beetles that eat all of uh the decaying meat off of bones is there a video of that yeah there's a lot of videos online were you trained as a professional taxidermist i mean how does how does that happen since being there i have been so um we don't do a lot of taxidermy in the sense of like a traditional mount that's posed to look lifelike um we do once in a while um, and I've been trained tr- uh, in, with traditional methods um, for taxidermy, but mainly I just I skin birds for scientists to use, so it, it doesn't have to look lifelike. It just has to be preservable, and you know all of their extremities have to be accessible for measurements and things like that. What's the volume that you deal with on a, on a regular on a daily of basis? Birds. Yeah. Um, well, right now we're coming into migration season, so like this morning I walked. I work in the mammal department also and so this morning i was working in mammals but i walked through the bird prep lab and there's like five or six bags of 
like grocery size bags of birds on a table just from this morning. Just this morning. Oh, wow. Just this morning. So migration season, you know, we get thousands of birds. And every day you're preserving and keeping those collections. Yeah. So Lauren was talking about the the vast nature of the entire collection. One percent of it only being the museum itself. How do you actually house? I mean, we were joking about it earlier, but how do you house all that? Uh, it's a challenge, um, and. I mean, we have a lot of vaults, and uh, in 2005, we burrowed underground to build more storage so we didn't have to have an off-site storage. We built two floors under the museum that house all of our oversized dinosaurs that are too heavy to be housed on the, the top Wait, floors. what and did you just say? <laughs> all all of the big... Up, you just brought up oversized dinosaurs, two floors in, in basements, yeah, giant basements. Let's, let's go back on yeah. this one. What, How what many dinosaurs are in there? We've got a, a pretty big... Yeah, thousands. Wait, thousands of thousands dinosaurs? of well, dinosaurs. I mean, they're all they're individual bones, you know, and and fossils. But they're have you ever gone down to the dinosaur vault and just said, you know what, I'm going to create a new dinosaur <laughs> and just take all the various <laughs> bones like Legos and made your own dinosaur, crypto dinosaur. Yeah, the crypto uh, yeah. dinosaur, di- you know, whatever. Have the Kaylee Shore. Can for you do that? Yeah. yeah, that's science, guys. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> but you could, You're, I guess. You c- Bad at Sports spoke to Dina Hagag of USA, a group that offers unrestricted $50,000 grants to American artists. Hagag spoke about artists' wages and labor, granting grants, and why they couldn't find an artist in Delaware. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. You are listening to Lumpen Radio. This is Bad at Sports Center coming to you on another moderately nice kind of springish Wednesday morning in uh, tropical Bridgeport. Chicago, Illinois, USA. Uh, I'm Brian Andrews, and always I am joined by DJ Super Older Brother. <laughs> what up? And my co-hosts Ryan Peter Miller and Dana Bassett. Uh, and we are joined by the president of the USA. This is kind of a, a big pull for us. <laughs> this is huge. Uh, so you are who? Dina Hagag. Yes, a, a hi. The president of the USA mm-hmm. proper, properly. Yeah. United but, States artists. United Different. States artists. And so uh, I'm easily confused. So what's the difference between United States artists and the United States of America? Oh, man. <laughs> That's pretty much nothing. Well, right now a lot. is di- There's a big difference between those two things, a difference we're very glad about. Uh, well, the first thing is that United States artists is actively trying to help artists in this country. Um, and it, it looks hopeful that the United States of America will also be trying to help artists, we hope. Um, but we'll know more, I guess, this fall when the budget passes. Um, the other difference is that United States Artists is only staffed by about five people, and we have a small office here <laughs> in Chicago, whereas the United States of America is seemingly only staffed by maybe 13 people, and they are in Washington, D.C. are these five people your relatives? Um, no. Oh, so there is okay, a big difference there, too. Also, our people are incredibly competent and <laughs> wonderful. Interesting. So is there's it, a difference. Are, the, are there any women or people of color? By oh, any we, have, we have them in... Loads, yes, oh. uh, myself included. Gross. Unlike our current uh, administration, yeah. Uh, so, so outside of those, you know, those Venn diagrams that we can draw, let's focus in on on your circle of Venn diagrams. So, let's. Mm-hmm. Let, what's the larger picture of USA? Yeah, so USA is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we've been around for uh, a little over ten years now. And what we do is we fund 50 artists each year, and we award them a $50,000 unrestricted artist award. We hand out almost 50 $50,000 artist awards. There it is. That's the right one. Perfect. And go ahead and archive that. Uh, (laughs) 
So yeah, uh, we you know we fund artists in every medium imaginable: visual, uh, theater, music, dance, literature, uh, all over the all over the country. From Sheetas, except for Delaware, we have funded every single state and territory. So we funded all forty nine states, excluding Delaware and Puerto Rico. We're really trying to get it to Delaware. So. I think artists all over this country soon move Puerto, to Puerto Rico. Delaware. Kind of needs it right now. Yeah, yeah. Pretty we think, which is yeah, it's a fascinating you have thing not really had to a think about that. Puerto Rican artist yet? No, we have. Oh, you have? Had, had. Yeah, we had one this year. Uh, Beatrice Santiago, who's actually at the Whitney Biennial right now and is amazing. Um, yeah, so Second. we are thinking a lot about what it means to put money in Puerto Rico, like just this action of giving money. And we were—I was actually just in conversation with a really amazing foundation that's trying to set up a similar artist award structure in Greece. And this idea of like, what does it mean to just flood cash in a country that just doesn't have it right now? And finding every, you know, thinking about a workforce in a really different way and how artists kind of contribute to an economic workforce. And I guess the Greek, the Greece, Greek government has not really done that quite yet. But anyway, yes, we give money. But we also raise a lot of money. You got to get money to give money. Yeah. So we, I feel a little bit like Robin Hood. Like we're just out here raising all of this money and then we just give it to artists who don't really have the money. It's pretty great. And something um, that's really interesting too about USA is the stories about what the money is used for are very different Different yeah. than yeah than what you would expect. And I'll, I don't want to use the word mundane like it's not important, but they're practical yeah because artists, artists are people too and we you know <laughs> you know they pay their rent and they have medical debt and they have kids that go to college and they try to have babies and fix their cars but also you know still an overwhelming amount of our artists use it to make new work which i think is pretty common uh one advice we've actually been seeing recently or i noticed it this year a lot is um older artists are encouraging a lot of our younger artists to put it in retirement and that's kind of a fast i mean what do you do with like completely unrestricted $50,000. I mean, I'm actually curious, like what would each of you do if tomorrow you were just like, here's 50 grand, you can do anything you want to do with it? Uh, pay down my mortgage enough so I don't have to pay that stupid insurance and then Boom. fly to Vietnam. <laughs> That's Those are two really well, so practical would, and passion, yeah. one of each. Gosh, I would put it in like a, a baby savings fund. Baby savings. Baby savings. Okay, see, all right, so, mm-hmm. Mine would either go to student loans or down payment on a home. Yeah. So something more practical. Than very, very I'm practical. compelled by the retirement. I think uh, retirement yeah. sounds like a thing yeah. that wasn't that appealing, but is becoming more appealing as I get yeah. older. Yeah, and I think it's terrifying to hear that like Americans are outliving their retirement savings, and older artists are like, we spent every dime on art, and now, you know, some of us are approaching seventy, and like. You know, our bodies are different. No, it's real. That's And I think a lot of artists are compelled by that in an unrestricted award. But there's you know? also, I mean, f part of what artists need is money, but part of also what artists need is time and security, right? Totally. And so the other side of that is you may be able to make that in-the-pocket project because you may be able to afford to mm -hmm. have time to do an actual project that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise yeah. or take a risk that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Yeah. Ooh, yeah and I also think in our for USA's context, I think it's also really important to realize that our artists are all over the country and money operates differently all over the country, right? So like $50,000 to somebody in Sitka, Alaska is really different than somebody in Miami, Florida, than to somebody in Dubuque. Then, you know, I mean, it's just like a totally it's, – it's, it's nebulous and strange. But I think I'm thinking a lot about – how has Americans' relationships to money changed and, like, how much is that affecting artists? Um, so I think just societally our relationship to debt is totally different than what it was when USA was founded 10 years ago. I think we're relying a lot more on people's income than we were 10 years ago, right? So now, you know, if artists get a $50,000 award, some are risk of 
some are at the risk of losing their health care, right? Because your income matters, like where you are on a spectrum, whereas that wasn't necessarily the case a decade ago. So I'm also thinking about sometimes getting money isn't always the most helpful thing. And how do we make sure that artists are protected no matter what, you know? That's a good question. I think another question that makes me think is what – we haven't really talked about what type of artists or what the criteria for mm-hmm. artists who win a USA award is. And it is a very interesting spread of artists. Yeah. Like when you say every discipline, every walk, it's like uh, – really truly is there yeah. seems like polar extremes of the worlds that people are living I mean, maybe in maybe we can cite some of the people yeah who the great are names they? that you've had like was like barry jenkins mm-hmm. from moonlight yeah um, he's won it kara walker yeah this year yeah i mean, do more miami people brian i you're probably better at that than me <laughs> uh, but rosie herrera rosie, rosie herrera, herrera won it this year chat won it last year i think so who's i think originally from miami yeah um yeah, we've had some huge names, but I think my favorite thing, I was actually worried when I first got this job that everybody would think I was just like under the influence of something all the time because every time I learned something, I'd be like, whoa. Like that was my only response. I would just sit down and look at all the metrics and be like, there's no way that something this diverse exists. I mean, USA's range is 21 to people in their 90s. Again, every single state and territory <laughs> except for Delaware. We've hit every, I mean, broadly, race, gender, class, identity, like every kind of demographic. And the beautiful thing is about three years ago, they decided to put all 50 of those people in a room. And I got to join USA right before they did that this year. And it was just so beautiful. Like I even underestimated how nice it would be to sit in a room with Americans from all over the country who oftentimes don't look anything alike, who have not had the same life experiences. And to hear them have those conversations and to see them find common ground through their work was super, super beautiful. The beautiful thing about the medium, too, is that I am so deeply entrenched in visual arts and it's been beautiful to dig into literature and like that entire universe or architecture and what they're doing or craft. And to see that oftentimes our sectors aren't even in conversation with one another, let alone then this larger conversation about how does the general public engage artists when artists of different sectors don't even always know about one another's yeah and like where else do black like uh i remember one year there was black indians yeah a black indian who was awarded i can't remember his name now and then in a room with like a native american artist who makes like leather work and tooling and then like uh when genji mutu was there yeah and when yeah when do all those people get together yeah and the idea of them like talking about retirement funds and that kind of stuff is really I don't know. It's so different. Yeah. For what I th- what we think of. Yeah. When we think of like what a foundation is. Yeah. When I think of the Guggenheim or the MacArthur. Yeah. Like this year, Charles Atlas won it, but so did Ernie Marsh, who's like a silversmith from Wyoming, and it was like this is the most beautiful thing in the entire world. So with that diversity, what is the process of selection for? Yeah, the- it's pretty intensive. So we ask a thousand people, roughly a thousand people, all over the country to nominate two artists every year, um, and that's. The, that's the hardest part of this process is identifying who all of those people are each year. Some are repeats from past years, some are not. So for example, like, man, we have not, how have we not found anybody in Delaware? So this year, like, we looked a lot at like every Delaware <laughs> cultural producer we could find. Um, so the people that are asked to nominate are curators, directors, producers, publishers, artists, um, anybody who has any kind of stake, people in academia, elsewhere. And then once their nominations come in, all of those artists are asked to apply. So sometimes we see an artist who's been nominated a lot, like their their name keeps coming up, and that's really interesting. And then other times it's someone 
we no one on our staff has heard of or no one knew about before are, are really compelling. Once all the applications come in, we then have nine different panels, one for each medium. So sort of industry professionals or artists or past fellows in that sector, they make the final determination. Um, so you can so, have as many as 2,000 people nominated. Yeah. That's a huge pool. Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating because I think that <clears throat> the another interesting part about USA, which isn't as public, is all of these other people, like not just the artists, but like everyone else that's affiliated with this organization that is really involved. And I've been thinking a lot about like how do you share some of that data because it's fascinating to be like, oh, this is every person who more or less works in the arts in Arkansas. Like, and if you're ever interested in finding somebody there who does anything from opera to visual arts, like we can be a resource in that way. So I've been thinking about how we're like logging an American workforce, like an entire sectoral workforce and how it's huge and compelling. And it's one of the first times I'm like, oh, we don't live in a bubble. Like we don't, there's people who do what we do everywhere. The Trump Diaries. This week on The Trump Diaries, Republicans get a victory in Congress by ripping health care away from 24 million Americans. Trump makes sure his offices are turned to Fox News and only Fox News. And with the sudden firing of the director of the FBI, Trump's administration dove into Watergate territory and maybe entering twilight. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 105, May 4th. The House took a major step today towards repealing Obamacare and narrowly passing a bill, 217 to 213, that would leave some 24 million Americans without health insurance. The bill included last-minute amendments designed to draw votes from the most conservative House Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus, as well as from their more moderate counterparts. The vote occurred before the Congressional Budget Office had released a new analysis of the revised bill with its cost and impact. The measure now moves to the Senate, where its fate is far from certain. Democrats are confident that some provisions of the House bill will not comply with special budget rules that Republicans must follow in order to skirt a Senate filibuster. Either way, the bill as passed does amount to an $800 million to $1 billion tax cut for the very wealthy. Reaction to the bill was harsh and swift, with Democrats taunting Republicans and many observers noting the bill had no chance of passing in the Senate. Here in Illinois, even Governor Bruce Rauner, a Republican, expressed disdain, saying the law was bad for Illinois in a statement. And in a galling move, the GOP bill exempted members of Congress and their staffs from losing popular Obamacare provisions. That amendment would ensure the staffers continue to have access to Obamacare programs, such as a ban on discrimination based on pre-existing conditions, while other enrollees could lose those policies if their state applied for a waiver. And North Korea accused South Korea and American intelligence agencies of plotting to assassinate its leader, Kim Jong-un, and it warmed of an unspecified counterattack. North Korea claimed the CIA had sent people into the North on a secret mission to kill Mr. Kim with biochemical agents. Trump also eased restrictions on political activity by churches and charities, but backed away from a broader religious liberty order that would have let faith-based organizations and companies avoid serving or hiring gay people. Trump signed the executive order to mark the National Day of Prayer and also returned for the first time since the election to New York City. And Puerto Rico declared bankruptcy on $120 billion of debt, making it the largest United States government entity to seek court refuge from its creditors in American history. The move sends Puerto Rico into uncharted territory. Trump has tweeted that Puerto Rico should not be bailed out. Now, Puerto Rico is not a state, so none of the major precedents apply, such as the bankruptcy in Detroit. But the outcome of this case may determine how other troubled entities, such as the state of Illinois, will be resolved. 
and the Department of Justice has decided not to charge two white officers who shot and killed a black man in Louisiana last summer. Video footage appearing to show the officers holding down Alton Sterling as they fired their weapons sparked days of protests in Baton Rouge. The decision not to prosecute the two officers comes with a new U.S. government and a new head of the Justice Department, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And 538 claims the impact of FBI Director James Comey's letter to Congress did sway the election of Trump. The impact at a maximum might have shifted the race by three or four percentage points toward Trump, swinging Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Florida to him, perhaps along with North Carolina and Arizona. At a minimum, its impact might have only been a percentage point or so. Clinton lost Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by less than one point. That means the letter was probably enough to change the outcome of the Electoral College. Day 106, May 5th. As the fallout continued from the health care law repeal, new details emerged as to the law's particulars. Sexual assault could be considered a pre-existing condition under the health care amendment, which allows states to discriminate based on medical history. In addition to rape, postpartum depression, and cesarean sections are all considered pre-existing conditions. Companies can also deny coverage for gynecological services and mammograms. And the latest economic report brought good news. An impressive 211,000 jobs were added last month, bringing the three-month average up to 174,000. The unemployment rate was just 4.4%. That is the lowest rate in more than 10 years. And the Senate Intelligence Committee asked a number of Trump campaign associates to hand over emails and other records of communications and dealings with Russian officials and business people. Those letters open the way to subpoenas for anyone who does not comply. Requests were sent to Roger Stone, Carter Page, Paul Manafort, and Michael T. Flynn, among others. And Mark Green, Trump's second nominee to be Secretary of the Army, abruptly withdrew from consideration on Friday. He had been accused of discrimination against gay individuals, which Green denied in a statement. And CBS reports that Trump was directly involved in the post-inauguration hunt for the rogue National Park Service tweeter. An FOI request revealed that Trump was, quote, concerned about he used the National Park Service Twitter account to retweet side-by-side comparisons of the crowds at the Trump and Obama inauguration ceremonies. That tweet was later deleted. Day 107, May 6th. In a rare moment of unity, hospitals, doctors, health insurers, and even some consumer groups are denouncing Republican health care legislation that passed the House on Thursday. The prospect of millions of people unable to afford coverage led to an outcry from the healthcare industry as well as consumer groups. And they found an uncommon ally in some insurers who rely heavily on Medicaid and Medicare as mainstays of their business. And the Food and Drug Administration was ordered to switch their TVs from CNN to Fox News by the Trump administration. A lot of the staff were very upset about the change, an employee told BuzzFeed News, which first reported the switch. After some complaints about the switch, we all received an email saying that the current administration ordered the change, said the employee. The employee then later said some of the TVs have since been turned off. She did not know by who. Day 108, May 7th. Emmanuel Macron walloped far-right candidate Marine Le Pen to handily win the French presidency on Sunday, giving real relief to the European project. Macron was projected to have won 66% of the vote, and at 39, he becomes the youngest president in France's Fifth Republic. Macron's candidacy overcame a stunning last-minute hack believed to be orchestrated by Russia and American alt-right forces. And Warren Buffett used his annual summit to criticize the Trump administration's health care overall as a giveaway to wealthy individuals like himself. 
Buffett, who is a prominent Democratic supporter, said the American Health Care Act was, quote, a huge tax cut for guys like me. Buffett also said rising health care costs rather than high taxes were the biggest drag on American businesses. Said Buffett, medical costs are the tapeworm of American economic competitiveness. And Mitch McConnell has created a 13-man working group on health care, including staunch conservatives and ardent foes of Obamacare. There's an emphasis here on the word man. McConnell has no women in the group in a move widely seen as a sop to the far right. Now, that move could backfire. McConnell cannot afford to lose more than two votes, and Republican senators like Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana are widely seen as unwilling to go along with hardline conservatives on health care. Collins and Cassidy are also considered Republican experts on health care, and their omission raised eyebrows. And the New York Times reported that Kushner companies are using their ties to the Trump administration in China to promote $500,000 investments in New Jersey real estate as the path to a residency card in the United States. Kushner's sister, Nicole Meyer, made a pitch to attract $150 million in financing for a Jersey City housing development to more than 100 Chinese investors gathered at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Beijing. The money would be provided through a much-criticized government program known as EB-5 that awards foreign investors a path to citizenship in exchange for investments of at least $500,000 in American development. The Kushners made a similar pitch in Shanghai. Day 109, May 8th. FBI Director James Comey overstated key findings involving the Clinton email investigation during testimony to Congress last week, reports ProPublica and The Washington Post. Comey offered seemingly new details to Congress in an attempt to underscore the seriousness of the situation FBI agents faced last fall when they discovered thousands of Clinton aide Huma Abedin's emails on the computer of her husband, Anthony Weiner. Comey said somehow her emails were being forwarded to Anthony Weiner, including classified information. Adding later, his then-spouse, Huma Abedin, appears to have had a regular practice of forwarding emails to him, I think, to print out for her so she could then deliver them to the Secretary of State. Comey added that Abedin forwarded hundreds of thousands of emails, some of which contained classified information. People close to the investigation say neither statement is accurate. Abedin did occasionally forward emails, but it was neither a regular practice nor were the emails marked classified. The FBI and the Justice Department are considering how to correct the record. And President Barack Obama warned Trump against hiring Michael Flynn to be part of his national security team, according to a report in the New York Times. In addition, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates testified today before Congress that she told the White House Flynn was susceptible to blackmail. The former Director of Intelligence James Clapper also confirmed that British intelligence shared, quote, very sensitive information about Russian connections to Trump's campaign. Trump has yet to explain why Flynn was retained for 18 days after Yates's warning. Sean Spicer attempted to deflect questions by noting that Flynn had received a security clearance under the Obama administration. However, those security clearances are much less stringent than the one Flynn would have needed to assume a cabinet position. Spicer allowed that Obama's warnings to Trump were, quote, taken with a grain of salt, as Flynn had been a ferocious critic of the former president. Obama, of course, fired Flynn from his position. And Governor Greg Abbott of Texas signed a law banning so-called sanctuary cities. Abbott claimed it was necessary to ensure the safety of residents of his state. That bill, one of the most contentious that came before the Texas legislature this year, will be challenged in court by the ACLU. And the EPA dismissed half its scientific advisors on a review board. New EPA head Scott Pruitt said he wished to make a clean break with the Obama administration. That move came as a surprise to members of the board who had both been informed in January and recently that they would be kept on for another term. It is said the positions will be filled by people from the oil and gas industries. And a data analysis conducted by the AP shows that interest and engagement in Trump's tweets have been trending downward since he took office in January. In fact, Trump's most retweeted tweet as president clocks in at just 82,000 shares. President Barack Obama's broke the 900,000 share mark. Day 110, May 9th. 
In a move that immediately recalled the darkest days of the Watergate scandal, Trump suddenly fired FBI Director James Comey, terminating the man leading a criminal investigation of whether or not Trump's advisors colluded with the Russian government during the 2016 presidential election. It raised the specter of political interference into an investigation and immediately led to calls for a special counsel. Trump claimed the firing was due to Comey's handling of the investigation into Clinton's email server, but in the letter Trump sent to Comey, he directly referenced the investigation into Russia. Quote, while I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation, I nevertheless concur with the judgment of the Department of Justice that you are not able to effectively lead the bureau. White House officials refused to say anything more about the three occasions Trump cited in that letter. This move came after subpoenas were apparently sent to Trump associates, summing them for testimony about their connections with Russia. In addition, the New York Times reported that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general who was supposed to have recused himself from any investigations involving Trump and Russia, had been directed by Trump to come up with reasons to fire Comey. Also, Comey had asked the Justice Department for a significant increase in money and personnel for the Bureau's investigation into Russia's interference in the presidential election. Comey made the request to Rod Rosenstein. Rosenstein is the deputy attorney general who wrote the memo that was used to justify the firing of Comey this week. Trump told reporters, quote, Comey wasn't doing a good job. Very simply, he was not doing a good job. Earlier that day in posts on Twitter, Trump said he was justified in dismissing Comey because Democrats and Republicans had lost faith in his leadership. Trump went on on Twitter to suggest that a Democratic senator be investigated just after that senator appeared on television condemning the president's action. Trump wrote, watching Senator Richard Blumenthal speak of Comey is a joke. Richie devised one of the greatest military frauds in U.S. history. As a poll in Connecticut, Blumenthal would talk of his great bravery and conquests in Vietnam, except he was never there. Blumenthal, in fact, served in the Marine Reserves during the war, but he had presented himself as a Vietnam veteran at one point. Blumenthal never boasted of bravery or conquest, but did once tell an audience that I served in Vietnam. Comey's firing drew bipartisan condemnation with Democrats and Republicans both calling now for a special prosecutor. John McCain and Richard Burr both broke ranks with Mitch McConnell in joining Mark Warner and others in calling for the appointment. McConnell has been attempting to resist an investigation leading to a direct challenge from Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Schumer said, quote, I remind him and my Republican friends that nothing less is at stake than the American people's faith in our criminal justice system and the integrity of the executive branch of our government. Any study by a left-leaning group has found that Wisconsin's voter ID law suppressed 200,000 votes in the 2016 election. Trump won by 22,000 votes and change. The study by Priorities USA found that strict voter ID laws both in Wisconsin and other states led to a significant reduction in voter turnout in 2016. The laws disproportionately impacted African-American and Democratic-leaning voters. And Trump photoshopped a tweet denying collusion with Russia into his Twitter header yesterday. During Senate testimony, James Clapper said he was not aware of any evidence that proves there is a collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Trump promptly posted a quote atop his feed. Trump then later changed his Twitter header to a picture without the Photoshop tweet some hours later after New York Magazine published a story on it. And the Trump administration cited a segregation error ruling to defend its travel ban in a federal court hearing on the matter. And the Trump administration cited a segregation-era ruling to defend its travel ban in a federal court hearing on his Muslim ban. Trump's team cited an infamous 1971 Supreme Court ruling that decided courts shouldn't investigate the motivations of officials who closed public pools in Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, in fact, closed those pools rather than integrate them. And an Iowa congressman endured a rough day in the wake of his vote on the GOP health care bill. Rod Bloom first abruptly ended a TV interview when questioned on his vote and his policy of pre-screening residents attending his supposedly open town hall meetings with constituents. A few hours later, he showed up at a town hall meeting only to find the majority of the pre-screened audience yelling and berating him because of his vote on the House Obamacare repeal bill. 
and Trump's approval rating is at 41.7%, according to the 538 Meta poll. Other polls found a 7% slide after the passage of the health care bill by Congress. These are the Trump Diaries. Buildings on Air spoke with Jeff Roberts from New World Design about his plan to fly pigs in front of Chicago's Trump Tower. Rogers revealed how Pink Floyd helped with the project, the difficulty of obtaining city permits, and how radical architecture can change perceptions. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. And I'm extra excited to uh, bring back one of our... uh one of our first few repeat guests uh, entering an elite crew, um, and that's Jeff Roberts, who came in way back in December, episode two, uh, to talk about his proposal, you might remember, um, for the flying pigs in front of Trump Tower. Now, uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Yeah, so for those of uh, our listeners who might not remember this or just tuning in, um, maybe you could just describe the project from, well, I guess, like a 300-foot view. <laughs> so so what the project ultimately looks like is uh, four gold uh, balloon pigs that are the size of – each one's the size of a London double-decker bus floated just into the visual field of the Trump sign in Chicago. We're tethering them off a surface in the river. Uh, and the whole thing is about providing visual relief to the citizens of Chicago um, from the, you know, the rather iconic uh, sign that's on that yes, building. The gigantic sign that yes. is like three stories high and uh, very visible from miles away Indeed. when you're coming right down Wabash Avenue. <laughs> right. And, and, and the most one of the most important parts of the city, right? One of the most visible parts of the city. Yeah. It brands it in a very unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the very few buildings in the city where you have, because uh, you know we're we're on a grid here, so it's very rare that a building, um, you know, is at the end of a long run of street. Uh, usually, it just goes on and on forever. So you know, this this has vantage points from the river and, and Wabash, and so it, yeah, it's a very cool project and. Um, you know, I think when you were first on the show, it was just kind of like this tongue-in-cheek sort of like uh, like symbolic, like wouldn't it be great if we could if we could just do this? And um, here we are, uh, you know, many months later, and uh, the project's on the cusp of becoming a reality. A- absolutely. Uh, after the initial release, uh, when we talked with you, uh, within about a week of that, the whole project went international. Uh, we we did interviews all over the world. Uh, we were in papers everywhere. And we got a lot of feedback on on the project and the, what people thought about it. And uh, so that was grand. Uh, we got to talk about something iconic that we were creating that had a message. So after the big you know, press uh, exposure of that, we kind of closed things down, quieted it up, and then went back to the drawing board and said, okay, we've always knew that this could be done in some fashion. Okay, now how do we do it? Yeah. And let's see if it's logistically possible, and if it is, then we'll come back and do another press release. And you know, we had to haggle out things with the city. You have to look at the engineering of this thing. You have to look at the fabrication possibilities of these balloons. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate the ambition uh, because, you know, a lot of times when we when we as architects do these kind of tongue-in-cheek speculative proposals, and we, we've talked about this on the show too in reference to some of the proposals that were being done for Trump's wall, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, you have, have architects who are in good faith proposing sort of like, you know, alternatives, right? Or mm-hmm. like art projects. And um, 
but but the fact that this one is like is going to happen and and that there is the ambition to like hey let's do it we're not just kind of here for the jokes like you know this this is symbolic but you know the symbolism somehow means more and is earnest if it's actually a realized project like that that to me is uh, something special so I'm, I'm wondering if that was just like a natural thing of like hey we're architects and we build so we're just going to do it or like if it's a na- the nature of your practice or that, that's it all the above i mean we we know that it uh, it seems like a, a funny gesture to do this. I mean, the, yeah. the whole topic, if you look at it on the surface, floating giant balloon pigs, uh, and you don't look any deeper, it, it has a funny note. But to us all along, it's been very, very serious and a very dedicated design effort. Yeah. Uh, if you recall from our original conversation, we talked about the, the layers of meaning. And if you take this back to its core, it really is a visual representation of Animal Farm, which is very serious. It's about yeah. totalitarianism and political, um, you know, issues. And, and it's – so it to us, it has that very – kind of very rich meaning. Right. So uh, we felt that it was worth fighting for. Yeah, that's great. And, I, you know, I think too – this is also a president who has very thin skin, as has been <laughs> noted by, like, uh, m- many, many commenters. And, um, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm sort of dubious of, like, some of the claims. Like, you know, you think back to the election and John Oliver being like, oh, let's call him Drumpf, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, all right, like, is this really going to, like, do, do much? But, like, this seems like the kind of uh, gesture that might actually, like, get under the skin in a really meaningful way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's not something you're going to be able to ignore. And it's it's not designed uh, to, to kind of get that kind of response. That's sure. really not even our target. If yeah. it happens, so be it. Sure. But really what we see this is about is – kind of binding our community together, people that are thinking more rationally, more sensibly, and more inclusively Yeah. versus the complete contrast of that, which, you know, we, we initiated this thing because of the campaign and the election. And now that these guys are in office, they're just deploying the same thing they talked about in the, in the campaign, you yeah. know, or, or they're acting in the same uh kind of with the same attitude. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. And I and I it's also unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Yeah. And you know, it's uh it's also nice it's like our our civic pride here in Chicago is um maybe aggravating to people who aren't from here, but um you know, we've got a lot of listeners to uh, uh who listen to the podcast from New York, so um we're just going to roll with it. We're we're not the second city, we're the first city. <laughs> I like it. But, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but I think uh yeah, I, I mean, I really think that, you know, with the history of sort of political activism um, and left activism in Chicago and the kind of massive turnouts that we've seen uh, for, for these events, it, it really does feel like it's a, the, the, a project like this can further coalesce that um, civic pride um, and that uh, on-the-ground resistance um, in a very, very meaningful and real way. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, as we've worked through this, we've put hundreds of hours into it uh, of just time that doesn't have any dollar value to it, right? Sure. So so we're in it for the spirit of it. And that's that's what we're kind of taking to the public is that idea. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I think, uh, you know, I was mentioning before we got on the air, um, you know, th- this show does not shy away from the boring side of architecture, what <laughs> a lot of people would say is the boring side of architecture, because I think it's it's actually really uh, interesting if, if you think about it in a certain way, because it's, it's really where the rubber meets the road of a lot of these things and where a lot of the kind of power structures that we intuitively react against um, live. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, how the process of realization 
um, of this has gone for you? Like, how, like how did you start shaping this um, as a reality? Have there been any roadblocks? Um, you know, you mentioned sort of some of the practical aspects, but I, it's more. absolutely interesting. I think yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what the rest <laughs> of the audience is going to be. But, I, but this project has been. Uh, like nothing I've ever worked on in my life, you know, uh, even going back to, you know, the, the highly theoretical education days, right? Yeah. So it's, it's no small feat floating uh, a helium balloon shaped like a pig in a canyon that's, that's, a, that's a weather canyon, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of wind through there. Uh, these things are massive. They have – you can calculate the lift on them from the weight of the, the skin to the, you know, what the helium lift is. So you have to figure out how to float this thing and control it in mild to medium winds. That's right. So we knew we couldn't tether it permanently on in the water also. Hmm. So we couldn't use the buoys that we represented in the initial renderings. So we decided the way to go was to use a, a barge, a temporary platform. So we use a construction barge just like is in front of many of the, the high rises that are going up along the river in front of the Apple Store right now. Yeah. Uh, so we would use that. Uh, we'll weld anchor points to the surface and then we've had our structural engineer which is um, a good friend Magruder structures here in Chicago uh, design a triangulation system that we can use to tether these things so that they are held tightly in place yeah so essentially all the balloons will be anchored tail to nose together and then you have a triangulated system that gives them a broad footprint and then we have a rigging system that will allow them to rise up a you know, kind of in a single motion. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. it's uh, – there's there's some great legacy stories. And one of the things that uh, I, I don't know if you knew uh, that, that came out of the first press release is a gentleman by the name of Sean Evans reached out to us. And uh -huh. Sean Evans is the visual director for Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. <laughs> wow. uh, and he said, uh, you know, uh, Roger thinks this is a pretty cool project. And uh, they sent us digital models of the pig. So go ahead and utilize this. So we updated our renderings with the Pink Floyd pig. I mean, this is the famous iconic pig that flew above the Battersea Power Station in London in 1976. Uh, so as we went along uh, and worked with Roger's manager and a variety of other people, they put us in touch with a fabricator in Oxfordshire, England, that creates these and for them. Yeah. And they've given us use to create them. So we're allowed to make four of them, exact replicas. Uh, from the original, uh, it's called algae is the name of the, the original pig. <laughs> and uh, so we've got that, that fabrication piece, sorting that all out. There's the scare, and the reason you really get diligent with your engineering on this is the original algae, it was a two, three-day photo shoot that they did. So they have the first day where they hang the pig or they float the pig between two of the towers, and uh, they didn't like the weather conditions. So they had hired a marksman to be on site. So if this thing got away, they're going to shoot it down. No kidding. <laughs> so that was the plan. Well, they decided to come back and shoot the next day, but the marksman didn't come back and the pig did get loose. So oh this gosh. thing gets up and he throws airspace at 30,000 <laughs> feet and it shuts the airport down or a segment of the airport. And it's this balloon floats out into this, the south of England and is found in the field, you know, days later. So, <laughs> so that's a pretty famous episode and we don't want to, uh, we don't want to go yeah. there. You know? So, our, uh, we've built a lot of things into this. We know that uh, we've designed it with a PVC that is uh, can take punctures, and the uh, the balloons won't split or shatter, so they'll stay afloat if they get punctured. Um, 
just a lot of things that had to be yeah, thought about. That's fantastic. Well, uh, when when do you think we can expect to see this um, gracing our river? We've we've had a couple of meetings with the city, and we're still working with the city on a number of things. This is the kind of project that just doesn't come before them very frequently, so it left a lot of departments scratching their head. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of smiles at you, and then sure. they're like, "Well, uh, what categories this fall into?" Yeah. So uh, what we're doing is we've kind of petitioned for a late. August, early September, Saturday morning kind of launch. Fantastic. So one morning, yeah. one day. That's great. Well, and I have to imagine, you know, uh, Chicago's uh, sort of famous with the building department and everything for being kind of labyrinthine. But I think, uh, I, I suspect that our um, even most cynical bureaucrats are um, kind of perhaps in their soul of souls eager to get this one through. Uh, one would like to think so, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to speculate, but I would like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, local trumpeter Jamie Branch appeared on several shows this week, guest DJing with Todd Carter on Bel Air Presents and performing live on Danny Van Derm's Down and Outbound. This excerpt is a piece for solo trumpet and delay pedal performed live in Studio B. Down and Outbound airs every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Branch's new album, Fly or Die, is out now on the International Anthem Recording Company label. Today in studio, we have uh, some special guests. We have uh, Jamie Branch here in town on tour, sporting your new record, Fly or Die. What's up, Jamie? What's up, Danny? What's up, Chicago?
Jamie Branch, live in the studio, everybody. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.